Pray with me. Lord God, we we thank you for your grace. We praise you for your glorious grace that we would see ourselves rightly tonight, see what we are, have been in our sin, to see you rightly tonight and who you are, that you would be glorified and honored and praised. The hearts would believe that lives would be changed as a result of our time at the cross tonight. May the gospel, the good news, be truly that in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. Very special night we have together. Love this time every year. We gather here tonight to testify of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to praise God for his amazing plan and perfect deliverance of saving grace on an undeserving people for salvation from sin unto eternal life with God and his redeemed people forever. We gather on Good Friday to praise God for his glorious grace. To dive in tonight, I want to start in Ephesians chapter 1. As we see that the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross of Calvary is for a chosen people. And it was the perfect and holy and eternal plan of God before creation even came to be. Look with me, Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. A plan set forth in the heavenly places, in the, in, the, in the perfect Holy Trinity, a plan set forth for the fullness of time. This is what's known as 
the covenant of redemption. It's a covenant made by the Holy Trinity before anything was created. Before the clock of creation was wound up. Before anything that was made was set in motion. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit planned for the beloved Son to take on flesh and to die in the place of a chosen worldwide people so that they could be blessed with every spiritual blessing and be adopted as sons through the work of Jesus Christ. Why did God set forth this plan? Look at the end of verse 5. According to the purpose of His will, God planned for the sacrificial Savior before time began, not because of anything outside himself, not because he looked through the halls of time and saw rebellious people, but purely according to the purpose of his will. We don't know the perfect and holy mind of the Almighty God and all his purposes, but we do know the highest aim for this plan, this covenant of redemption. And it's not us. The highest aim, the reason is not us. The highest aim of God for, for the darkest day in all of creation was not us, but was, as according to verse 6, the praise of of His glorious grace. God wanted to be praised eternally for His glorious grace that He lavished grace and a gift He was not obligated to give on a people who were undeserving of it in every way. He wanted to be praised for His grace, His glorious grace. What a beautiful thing. Church, we gather on Good Friday to praise God for His glorious grace. On Palm Sunday, this last Sunday, we looked at the promise of God for the Messiah, the anointed royal figure who would redeem His people, the promised one, as according to that first gospel announcement proclamation and promise of God speaking to Satan in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The he God is referring to here is the promised redeemer. Back at creation, man chooses God, chooses to deny God and chooses sin, God's response is the promised Redeemer, a sacrificial Savior for God's people, Jesus Christ. The imagery of Jesus crushing the head of the servant serpent is to point to his victory over him. It's finished. The bruising of Jesus' heel is to point to the sacrifice of his flesh that he made for us on Good Friday. 
it would be so significant, so game-changing, and this is the one for all time that mankind is looking for. And, and, and that's at the beginning of the Old Testament. And throughout the Old Testament, God points us. And when he reveals to us in his written word, he points us and mankind's utter need for the Messiah, for Jesus. And then in the opening verses of the New Testament, we hear the announcement given to Mary and Joseph that Mary will give birth to the Messiah the promised one. She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21. Yeshua, Yahweh saves. It's the name of Jesus. Jesus, Yeshua, Yahweh saves. That's what Jesus means. God saves. The plan of redemption, the plan for the sacrificial Savior is being carried out. And God the Son now has taken on flesh and has arrived on the scene to do a very specific, very poignant, very needed work. A roughly 30-year life of obedience to God and perfection without sin leads to three years of ministry with a band of, of brothers around him that he called to follow him, to, to shape and to model and to disciple, to raise up, to prepare them for the work ahead. And in the gospel accounts, we arrive at this, this week, this holy week that begins with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Thursday night is that historic Last Supper that we celebrated just a little while ago that he commissioned his church to do regularly as a testimony of the gospel. And then on Friday night, the chastisement, the punishment to his flesh begins in the most heinous way. Uh, a few captions from, from that time. Matthew chapter 27, verse 27 through 37 first. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head, and put a reed in his hand, his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and they took the reed, and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, putting on his clothes on him. They led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon, by name. They 
They, they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Later in verse 45 through 54 of Matthew 27, From the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema hashbapa. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. Another one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after the, his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many when the centurion, those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Testimony of the sacrifice of the Son of God is according to Matthew, the Messiah, the promised Savior, even though evil and sin and lawless men had their way that day with the most innocent man to have ever lived, we must not forget that this was God's plan from the beginning. It was His plan to save His people, to be forever praised for His glorious grace. If you're still struggling with that stated synopsis of these things, listen to Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Church, we gather on Good Friday to praise God for His glorious grace. Jesus said in Mark 2.17, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We've, for a moment, considered the eternal plan for a sacrificial Savior now let us consider our need for a sacrificial Savior. What we have to understand is that even though we may think we are righteous in many of our own ways, that all of mankind are sinners apart from the perfect work of the sacrificial Savior. 
Since the fall of Adam, every part of a natural man and woman has been corrupted by sin. His mind, his will, his emotions, and flesh. Sin affects the whole person. We sin because we're sinners by nature. All men are conceived in sin. Not even born in sin, but at conception, we're in sin. Dead in sin, slaves to sin, and deserving God's wrath. Total depravity does not mean that man is without a conscience or a sense of right and wrong, nor does it mean that a man is as wicked or sinful as he could be. Total depravity, that we are totally depraved, dead in our sin, recognizes that the Bible teaches that even the apparent good we do, the apparent good that an unregenerate man or woman does is still ruined by sin. Because that good's not done unto the glory of God. It still denies God in sin. It still lives for its flesh. A concise way to talk about our total depravity and therefore our need for a Savior in the cross is that we are spiritually dead. Yeah, maybe physically alive, but before Christ, we're spiritually dead. It's not just that some parts of us are sinful and other parts are pure. Rather, every part of our being is affected by sin. Our intellect, our emotions, our desires, our hearts are impure. Our motivations our decision-making processes, our goals, our motives, and even our physical bodies. Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. To the corrupt and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Their very minds and consciences are corrupted. That's Titus 1.15. Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17.9 In Genesis chapter 5, before the flood, we see God's speak of mankind and his evaluation of their condition after the fall of Adam. Stating in Genesis 6.5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. In these passages of Scripture, it's not denying that unbelievers don't do good things in human society on a horizontal level among each other in some sense. But these passages are denying that anything good spiritually can be done in terms of a relationship with God. Apart from the work of Christ and His substitutionary atonement to pay for our sin, to free us from sin, all unregenerate people, no matter how sweet, loving, and kind they might be to others, Ephesians 4.18 says, are darkened in their understanding 
alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Consequence of the fall of the first man, Adam, means every person born into the world is morally corrupt, spiritually dead, totally depraved. Mankind, in all of our wisdom and pride, loves to argue, though, that there is good in man. And not all men or women are bad or wicked. We arrive at this view, society arrives at this view, when you evaluate yourself or against other people. Certainly I'm not as bad as this person and look at the things they've done compared to what I've done. The critical error in this line of thinking is to compare us with one another. Others who are also not righteous. The terrible and complete condition of man's heart will never be recognized by people who assess it only in relationship to each other. We'll have an, an inaccurate, a grossly inaccurate assessment of our heart, of our spiritual condition. Romans 14.23, Paul says, Whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not truly full of faith in God, trusting in God, is sin. Think about that for a moment. This makes plain the depravity of our condition in relationship to God primarily, and then only secondarily in relationship to man. See, any moment of lack of faith in God, trust in God, is an offense to God. It is sin. Unless we start here, we will never fully appreciate the wonder of the cross. Totally depraved people can be very religious, can be very socially minded and generous people. But these very things are rebellion against what is due to the Creator. If it does not come from a genuine, childlike heart of trust in God, it's still sin. Its target is not holy, is not the Lord. Romans 3, 9-12 through 12 speaks of it so well. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Later in verse 18, Paul says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, total depravity in our condition apart from Christ and our sin doesn't mean that human beings are as bad as we could be. The natural man does have a conscience and other influences that govern and help restrain decisions. The constraints of civil law, the expectations of family or society, the conviction of natural human conscience all provide restraining influences on the sinful tendencies of our heart. While these 
advances and deeds have great horizontal impact, they all fall short of meeting the highest standard of God's holy perfection. Paul says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8.8 8. The mind of the flesh is the mind of man apart from the indwelling spirit of God. Ephesians 2.1 says that we Christians were all once dead in our trespasses and sins. That was our former state before Christ. The point of that deadness is incapable of anything that glorifies God. We had to be reborn. We had to be redeemed. In terms of bearing fruit for God or his kingdom and doing what pleases God, Jesus said clearly that apart from me, Jesus said you can do nothing. John 15, 5. Most simply put, an unregenerate person's actions do not proceed from faith in God. Hebrews eleven six. without faith it is impossible to please him. Now many people, including myself, grew up with an understanding that man, ha- that man has the ability, is free enough or healthy enough at some junction to choose God, to believe in his gospel. But as we've just seen, the Bible often and clearly speaks that man is not free, but enslaved dead in sin, spiritually a corpse. John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That we must be reborn, Jesus says, chapter 3 of John. We must understand tonight when we're talking about sin That if there's any tendency, any part of you that wants to make light of sin, Pastor, you're spending so much time on sin, realize to make light of sin is to make light of the Savior, is to make little of the cross. The power and wonder and absolute necessity of Jesus' death on the cross will be missed by those who do not have a right and full view of our sin. Only one who is holy and perfect, one who is like us, but holy and perfect, can stand in our place and pay the high price of what our lifelong and inherited sin deserves. Every human being is desperate for one thing more than anything else in this life. We're desperate for one thing more than anything else, for the perfect work of the sacrificial Savior to be counted as applied to you so that you can be saved unto a right and everlasting relationship with the Holy God. Hebrews 9.22 says clearly, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. 
The Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages for sin is death. That our sin earns the wage of death. The old covenant system ordained for a system of sacrifice to be done to point us to the ultimate sacrifice that mankind needed to be right with God. The sacrifice of, of an animal that was killed in the substitute as a substitute in the place of sinful people at the hands of the high priest. The animal's blood was shed. Death was the payment for sin. But here's the problem, and the Bible is so clear that system only was insufficient in that it pointed to that Redeemer, that promised Messiah, that sacrificial Savior. Our only hope is in Him. Here clearly, if Hebrews 10.4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. An animal would not do. No animal can fully and rightly pay for the sin of a sinful person, human being. No sinner can be fully, no sinner can fully or rightly pay for our own sin. We are full of sin. We are sin apart from Christ. Only the God man, only the one named Jesus, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1, verse 14. Only the God-man, only the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4, 15. Only the sacrificial Savior, Jesus Christ. When Peter, another eyewitness of Jesus, described how the Messiah, the Redeemer, would pay for our sin. He says this in 1 Peter 1, 18-19. You were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not ransomed not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. We need a spotless lamb. Therefore, one of us cannot be the lamb, for we're not spotless. John says, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Romans 3.25 tells us that God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. We call this penal substitutionary atonement. Penal. He, he paid our due penalty. This is what he bore in his body. Isaiah describes it like this. We heard Aaron recite some of these scriptures in the song earlier, Isaiah 53, 5-7, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us 
peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. Like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. The God-man, Jesus Christ, would die. And not just die, but die like a lamb. He would be slaughtered on our behalf. That's the penalty. The substitution is this. The spotless lamb took on the sin of his sheep who had gone astray. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. We are the ones who went astray. He took on our penalty, my penalty. He substituted himself in my place. That was my penalty. I should have been pierced, crushed, chastised, wounded unto eternal death. But praise be to God that He, God, the Father, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. He became sin on our behalf. He paid our price. He atoned our sin. And we must understand at that moment on the cross, when Jesus cried out, It is finished. The wrath of God was satisfied. The justice of God was met. The holiness of God was respected. First John 4.10 This is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent His only Son, Jesus, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Church, you see it with me tonight. We didn't love or pursue or honor God, everything but. We were enslaved in our sin. Living on our own thrones, Lord of our own lives, not submitted to His word or His will. Not living for His glory, but our own. Living to make much of creation over the Creator. We don't know true love, who is God, unless we are saved and set free of shackles of sin. The good news of the cross is God's deep love for us, whereby he sent his son Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
This is the love God has shown us. While we were his enemies, active enemies, we struggle so much to forgive or to give any kind of mercy to someone who maybe has gotten a little better from where they were and surely in our flesh struggled to forgive or show any kind of grace when they are actively coming at us with their wickedness and their evil and their hatred and their betrayal. We were actively his enemies. Deserving his righteous wrath. And of his free will, he planned our rescue before time. And he kept his promise throughout time. Amen? He came in flesh and finished his mission of sacrifice and became a man of sorrows. Jesus Christ. God in flesh became a man of sorrows for us and ultimately for the glory of God. He was not forced. When you consider the cross of Christ, don't picture a man bound and killed by the will of others, but by his own will and plan of redemption. When you look at the cross, see the love of God For all who believe in him, all who are willing to die to self and self-reign and live for Jesus, all who are willing to take up our our crosses and die to ourselves every day to live for the glory of God, to be done with the old life that was for the glory of self. All who see their sin and their desperation for Jesus and only Jesus, this is why we gather tonight to remember, to celebrate, to believe, and to be free. Free from sin, free to walk with God and worship Him above all else. If you have heard what I've testified tonight, and you see what Jesus, God the Son, took on flesh, what He did, and you see it as good news to your soul, you see that you're hopeless without him. God tells us in, in, in his written word to repent, to confess our sin, to turn from it, and to turn to Jesus and trust our lives to Jesus, to believe in him alone for salvation, no longer our works, no longer our best laid efforts. And that new life in Christ means life with God forever to join the church, to serve him the rest of your days with your life, to feast with him for eternity. I pray you would repent and believe tonight. On this Friday night, will you cry out to him? Please be so mindful of this moment. Will you proclaim that Jesus is God? Will you die to yourself and place your life in his hands? Will you be justified by his works and empowered by his Holy Spirit 
for His glory. I pray you will tonight. If this is you, we have elders and pastors and leaders here out in the office area. If you, even during the singing, you want to just go pray. A few of them will be out and about there. And if you just have questions or you just want to share what God's doing in your life, go, be prayed for, be loved by our shepherds. For those of you who are Christians, I ask that you would worship Him tonight. Not just with your singing, but worship Him by being honest with where you've been, with who you are. For some times for some people who claim Christ we can get caught up in really calling God a liar because we don't live like we're forgiven we don't live like the shackles of sin have been broken we crawl back into that old place those old practices we Church, you're, you're lying about who you are in Jesus when you do this. Worship Him. Thank Him. Believe with all your, your being of who He is and who you are in Christ. And to repent unto what He has before you for His glory and your good. I want us to shout to the heavens tonight to be authentic with him in prayer and worship him above all else. That the cross would not lose any of its crucifying power in our lives in this place. Pray with me. Father, we are so humbled that you made us, you created us, you gave us life, that you sent, you planned from the beginning to send the Son. The Son came faithfully to take on flesh, to lower himself, to live obediently, a lifetime to die willingly for us, your, your people, and for your eternal glory. Who are we? I'm sorry for how often we Make too much of us and too little of you. I pray that tonight, our time in your word and considering these things, help us to rightly see who we are apart from Christ. I 
for those who believe and truly trust their lives to you, who we are in Christ. To see who you are and what you've done and to be in awe. (laughs) And to be full of authentic, genuine praise. Thank you, Lord, for your glorious grace. Hear us as we respond now in prayer and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.